1971, a mysterious man single-handedly pulled off one of the most daring hijacking capers of all time before he vanished into thin air. In the 50 years since it occurred, it remains one of the most compelling crime mysteries and disappearance cases of the 20th century, with one simple open-ended question. Who was the man behind the alias D.B. Cooper? Did a recent investigation finally reveal who he is and his possible involvement in connections to deep state government corruption. This is the last episode of Season 2 of They Disappeared. The Mystery Man, revealing the identity of D.B. Cooper. On November 24th, 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper used cash to purchase a single ticket on Flight 305, which was a one-way trip from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Now, due to early misreporting, he would be mistakenly referred to as D.B. Cooper, a name which has remained with this case to this very day. Dan Cooper was described as a middle-aged white male, possibly in his early to mid-40s, wearing a black business suit over a white dress shirt, with a narrow black tie, and later, dark sunglasses. It was a look that would later inspire such characters as Mr. Smith in the Matrix movies, and the Men in Black characters played by Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. In 1971, you could do a lot of things in airports that you cannot do today, such as buying a plane ticket with cash, giving any name you want to give for the ticket, and carry just about anything you wanted to onto an airplane, with little to no resistance. Because there was limited security involved in air travel at that time, Cooper was allowed to board the aircraft, a Boeing 727, carrying his unchecked black tache case. He took his seat in the 18th row, near the front of the plane, The flight departed from Portland International at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and it was scheduled to land in Seattle 30 minutes later. En route, Cooper ordered a bourbon and soda and smoked eight cigarettes before he approached a flight attendant named Florence Schaffner and handed her a note which, according to her, mentioned that he had a bomb and that she needed to sit in the empty seat beside him. Once seated, Cooper opened his taché case and showed Florence the bomb inside, which he would later describe as eight red cylinders with red wires attached to a single large battery. He next told her to give the pilots his list of demands that would need to be delivered when they landed in Seattle. $200,000 four parachutes, and a fuel truck to refuel the aircraft. Florence left to the cockpit and informed the pilot, Captain William A. Scott, when she returned to her seat, she would say later that Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses, which he would continue wearing for the rest of his interactions with the flight crew and passengers. Captain Scott alerted air traffic control and informed them of the developing situation on board. Air traffic control then alerted local and federal authorities, 
who began to work on Cooper's demands. To buy time for them, and to not create a panic, passengers on board Flight 305 were informed there was going to be a delay to their arrival in Seattle because of a minor mechanical issue, and that the flight would remain in a holding pattern until it was resolved. As this was occurring, the president of Northwest Orient authorized the $200,000 ransom payment and informed the flight crew to continue to cooperate with the hijackers' demands. Florence Schaffner and another flight attendant named Tina Mucklow would later say that during this time Cooper was calm and polite. He purchased a second bourbon and soda, which he paid for with cash, and even told Tina she could keep the change. At one point, he looked out his window and correctly identified Tacoma when they flew over it. He also casually mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from the Seattle-Tacoma Airport, a detail that will be very important to remember later. The flight remained in its holding pattern, circling around the Puget Sound for nearly two hours, while the FBI obtained the ransom money, parachutes, and fuel truck Cooper had demanded. They had also mobilized units to the Seattle-Tacoma airport to deal with the situation once it was on the ground. The ransom money was comprised of $10,020 bills collected from several Seattle-area banks. They were unmarked, but most of the bills had serial numbers beginning with the letter L, identifying the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco for tracking purposes later. The FBI then went through the tedious task of photographing each bill. During this time, Cooper demanded that his parachutes be civilian-issued, with manual ripcords, and not military ones, with automatic deployment, which law enforcement would obtain from a local skydiving school. At 5.24 p.m., Cooper was informed his demands had been met, and 15 minutes later, he allowed Flight 309 to land at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Per Cooper's instructions, the aircraft taxied to a brightly lit area. He then ordered all of the plane's window shades to be shut to prevent any sniper an opportunity to take a shot at him. As the airliner sat on the apron, a Northwest Orient operations manager approached the aircraft in street clothes and delivered the ransom in a knapsack along with four civilian parachutes to Tina Mucklow, who was at the rear staircase of the plane. Shortly after, all of the passengers and Florence Schaefer were allowed off the plane. Tina Mucklow and the pilots were told to remain on board. As the aircraft was being refueled, Cooper outlined his next destination and instructions to the flight crew. They were to fly southeast towards Mexico City at the lowest speed and altitude possible. They were to keep the landing gear down and wing flaps lowered and keep the cabin depressurized. Cooper was informed by the pilots that the aircraft range was only a thousand miles and that they would need to refuel before entering Mexico airspace. After a brief discussion, Cooper and the pilots agreed on a refueling stop in Reno, Nevada. At 7.40 p.m., 
The airliner took off from Seattle-Tacoma Airport, heading southeast. Two fighter jets from McCord Air Force Base pursued the aircraft at a significant distance, one flying above it and the other flying below. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper had Tina Mucklow show him how to open the door to the rear staircase. He then told her to return to the cockpit and close the door. She would say later that before walking away, she saw him tying the knapsack with the ransom money around his waist. The flight crew would remain in the closed cockpit for the remainder of the flight. At 8 p.m., the warning light for an open rear door had flashed in the cockpit, followed by a change in air pressure that altered the aircraft's flight pattern requiring pilot correction to overcome. At 10.15 p.m., the airliner landed in Reno, Nevada. The craft was immediately boarded and searched extensively by federal and local law enforcement officers, but Cooper was no longer on board confirming to all that he had in fact jumped from the jet mid-flight. In the aftermath of the hijacking, FBI agents recovered Cooper's black clip-on tie in two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and had two lines cut from the chute canopy. Also recovered were a tie clip believed to be Cooper's and eight of his cigarette butts. Air and ground searches over wide areas of southeast Washington state were searched, but without a specific location pinpointed, those efforts proved fruitless. In March of 1972, FBI agents, along with Army soldiers, National Guardsmen, and Air Force personnel, conducted an 18-day ground search focused on Washington State's Clark and Cowlitz counties. In April that same year, a submarine was used to search the bottom of Lake Merwin, but nothing was found in either of those efforts. The FBI provided lists of the ransom serial numbers to banks, casinos, racetracks, and cash-operated businesses and law enforcement agencies around the world. In 1975, cash rewards were offered for anyone turning any of the missing money in, but no legitimate persons came forward, and no missing ransom money turned up. Then, seven years after the hijacking, two significant pieces of evidence would be discovered. In November of 1978, a deer hunter found a placard with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 near a logging road 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, which was within Flight 305's flight path, but far north of Lake Merwin. Then, nearly two years later, on February 10, 1980, an 8-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was on vacation with his family on the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington, when he found three packets of the ransom money paid to D.B. Cooper in the sand of the riverbank. In total, $5,800 was recovered by Brian and his family. The money was severely deteriorated and led to further debate as to how it got there and if D.B. Cooper could have survived his jump from the airliner and possibly buried the money with the intent to recover it at a later time. To date, the stair placard and small portion of the ransom money 
is all that was reportedly recovered from the hijacking. And publicly, the FBI has maintained it was likely that D.B. Cooper didn't survive his jump, which later investigations would refute. At this point in the D.B. Cooper case, you can choose one of two paths to follow. There's a conventional path, which is to believe the official findings of the FBI investigation, which are inconclusive, involve missing evidence, and theorizes that D.B. Cooper died during his jump attempt from the airliner. The other path involves listening to the findings of a large team of independent investigators, many of whom were former FBI agents, exposing not only that the FBI likely knew who D.B. Cooper was, but that they actively and knowingly attempted to either ignore or suppress further investigation into a top suspect the Bureau itself had identified. I'll present both sides, and you can decide for yourself who D.B. Cooper was or wasn't. The official FBI investigation into the case is available on their website and is as follows. The FBI learned of the crime in flight as it was occurring, and in the aftermath they interviewed hundreds of people and scoured the aircraft for evidence. By the time the five-year anniversary of the hijacking had come around, more than 800 suspects had been considered, and of all those potential suspects, all but 24 of them were eliminated. One individual suspect, named Richard Floyd McCoy, was tracked down and arrested for a similar airplane hijacking and parachute escape five months after the D.B. Cooper case. But he was ruled out as being D.B. Cooper because he did not match the physical descriptions provided by the Flight 305 stewardesses. Perhaps, Cooper didn't survive his jump from the plane, is what the FBI says. That the parachute he used could not be steered, his clothing and footwear were unsuitable for a rough landing, and he had jumped into a wooded area at night, a dangerous proposition even for a seasoned pro, which evidence suggests Cooper was not. This theory was given an added boost in 1980, when a young boy found a rotting package full of $20 bills that matched the ransom money serial numbers. Additional information found in the FBI archives questions if the name Dan Cooper was taken from a French-Canadian comic book about a fictional Royal Canadian test pilot that was popular around the same time as the hijacking. One of the last FBI updates includes an agent-created profile of Cooper as a man who likely served in the Air Force and was at one point stationed in Europe, which is where he may have become interested in the Dan Cooper comic books. He would have been someone who worked on cargo planes, giving him knowledge and experience in the aviation industry. And because his job required him to throw cargo out of planes, he would have had to have worn an emergency parachute in case he fell out which would have given him the working knowledge of parachutes, but not the functional knowledge needed to survive the jump. The profile concluded that Cooper was likely from the East Coast, but living and working in the aviation industry in Seattle, a job he would have lost during the 1970-71 economic downturn that heavily impacted the aviation industry. He was likely a loner, 
with little to no friends or family. Therefore, no one would have missed him after he was gone. You can view archived evidence photos, which include Cooper's black clip-on tie and the focus search areas on FBI.gov. One of the most important pieces of evidence were Cooper's cigarette butts, which with today's technology could likely provide a DNA profile. Those butts were collected and cataloged after the hijacking. But inexplicably, the butts were lost in transit between the Las Vegas and Seattle field offices. In such a high-profile case, such a blunder is inexcusable. Or could it be extraordinarily convenient? On the other side of this story is an outside investigation that was conducted by a volunteer cold case team over a seven-year period from 2011 to 2018. Their findings led to the book The Last Master Outlaw, written by Tom Colbert and Tom Solosi. When the private investigation team originally came together, they were coordinating efforts with the FBI to come together to solve the case. In fact, many members of the team were retired FBI agents, making the private effort an unofficial alliance of sorts. The private investigation eventually identified a person of interest, an individual named Robert Rackstraw. Rackstraw was a Vietnam pilot, explosives expert, and a paratrooper, who was also a convicted felon. When the investigators shared these findings with the FBI in 2016, then-FBI Director James Comey abruptly ended the collaboration with the investigation team and put out statements disputing any connection between Rackstraw and Cooper, saying in part that Rackstraw had been ruled out long before by the Bureau. But a FOIA request and lawsuit would prove that was a lie. On March 30th of 2017, six months after the investigation team successfully sued the FBI to obtain access to all of the files the FBI had on D.B. Cooper, in the trove of documents that were released was the FBI acknowledging that Rackstra was a strong match to the composite of D.B. Cooper and had all of the necessary knowledge and training to pull off the hijacking, the same information the private investigation had found. Despite multiple redactions in the FOIA release, Rackstraw's name appears multiple times. The redactions largely involve locations Rackstraw had been, and the names of those who knew him. Many pages are fully redacted. So if Rackstraw was the FBI's top suspect all along, what would be their motivation to lie? The story may go far deeper than anyone could possibly imagine. When it comes to CIA recruitment, particularly gray space operators, or what is known as gray men, the individuals the CIA targets typically fit strict profiles. They are often pilots and have previously participated in secret missions that fall somewhere between illegal and covert. They are intelligent, but devious. 
They may have criminal backgrounds or been involved in criminal activity in the past. Once recruited, these gray space operators tend to show up in unusual places around the world. Typically, at times of war, areas of widespread corruption, or where destabilization is occurring. The redactions in the FBI investigatory notes key in on several locations Rackstraw was known to have been, at the same time the CIA was running gray space operations. In the 70s, Rackstraw was in Vietnam, a decorated military pilot at a time of war. And thanks to declassifications, it is known he was in South Vietnam at the same time the CIA was actively involved in election meddling in the South Vietnamese National Assembly. In the late 70s and early 80s, Rackstraw was in Iran. During a time he was being investigated for bad checks and his stepfather's murder. Interestingly enough, Rackstraw was in Iran at the same time the Iran-Contra affair occurred, a CIA operation that involved arms dealing and smuggling between Iran, the U.S. military, and Contra rebels in Nicaragua, another place Rackstraw will be traced to. So now we have Rackstraw, a decorated military pilot, paratrooper, and explosives expert. All of the same skills brandished by Cooper during the hijacking. Rackstraw also had a criminal background, and he happens to show up in countries around the world at a time when the CIA is in those same countries and involved in gray zone operations, increasing the likelihood Rackstraw was a CIA gray man. So what is the likelihood Rackstraw was Cooper? When the investigation team started connecting these dots, they included a mugshot of Rackstraw, which strongly matched the D.B. Cooper rendering. The FBI abruptly shut down further meetings with the investigation team and put out a press release saying Rackstraw was cleared long ago, which according to their own documents is a lie. So why would the FBI lie? Well, if the FBI was inadvertently tracking a CIA gray man and they found out about it, they would have to do some fast reversals and redactions and make it more difficult for future investigations to uncover the truth. Perhaps that would involve mishandling evidence, namely those cigarette butts for DNA testing. They may engage in witness tampering and intimidation, which would also likely involve the CIA. Now, interestingly enough, the flight instructor who provided the parachutes that were given to Cooper was murdered in 2013. When investigators went to speak with Tina Mucklow, the Flight 305 stewardess who had dealt with Cooper directly, she couldn't remember much of anything. So now we come to motive. What would be the motive for a gray space operator to hijack an airplane? Perhaps it was to see if it was even possible. Cooper didn't ask for millions of dollars, just 200000 which could have been based on logistics, weight, and size. Recall that before the hijacking, airport security was almost non-existent. After the Cooper incident, the government became involved in air travel security, now known 
as the TSA. To this day, the FBI continues to paint D.B. Cooper as an angry, unemployed cargo plane worker who likely took his name from a comic book character and had little to no knowledge or skills to survive the jump, much less pull off the hijacking. You can believe that. Or, you can use critical thinking and realize that no ordinary individual with pedestrian knowledge of airplanes, parachutes, and explosives could calmly attempt such a daring caper. Recall that Cooper asked for four civilian parachutes, meaning he knew there was a distinct difference between civilian and military chutes. He told the Flight 305 pilots the elevation to fly at to keep the landing gear down and the wing flaps at 15 degrees. He had constructed a bomb, or what looked like a bomb, to make any regular individual who saw it believe it was a bomb. Only a pilot, paratrooper, and explosives expert could pull this off and escape by jumping out of a commercial airliner. Rackstraw was asked many times, publicly and privately, if he was in fact D.B. Cooper. Most of the time he said no, and went as far as saying he didn't like heights. In 2019, Rackstraw passed away. If he was Cooper, he took that secret to his grave. Tom Colbert's investigation team continued their push for answers and the evidence they presented to a judge laying out why they believed Rackstra was Cooper was strong enough for a judge to grant their FOIA request. That gave them access to the FBI's investigation into Cooper. Included in the investigation team's allegations was that Rackstra had told the Ingram family where to dig on the beach to find some of the money. That Tina Mucklow was intimidated into not speaking and deemed an unreliable witness. The investigation team recovered pieces of a parachute, similar to the one used by Cooper. It was found by an acquaintance of Rackstra, who was told by him where the chute was buried. To this day, The mystery of D.B. Cooper continues to draw speculation and intrigue. And regardless of which investigation findings you believe, the truth is that behind the scenes of the FBI, there is information that has been redacted, which may link Robert Rackstraw directly to the Flight 305 hijacking and the D.B. Cooper alias. But until that information is revealed, Dan Cooper will remain a mystery. A person who casually boarded an airliner in late 1971 and single-handedly changed the way airports operated for 30 years until 9-11 changed it forever. And until we know for certain who D.B. Cooper was, he will remain the mystery man. And maybe that was the point 
all along. Thank you again for listening to this episode of They Disappeared. So I've come to the end of Season 2, and I'm currently working on Season 3. But I did want to give a special thanks to everyone out there who reached out to me with their kind words about losing Malo. I definitely do appreciate it. Probably more than I can say here. I hope to hear from more of you in the future. And until then, thank you again for sticking with me and listening. I wish you well, and until next time, take care.